The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Many of us have read the great modern books about the Battle of Antietam, books like The Gleam of Bayonets by James Murfin or Landscape Turned Red by Stephen Sears. Few of us, however, have even known about the Ur-text of Antietam Studies, an 1,800-page manuscript history of the campaign and battle written by Ezra Carman, Colonel of the 13th New Jersey. Now, at last, that definitive study is beginning to see print. Edited and annotated by one of the leading students of the battle today, Dr. Thomas G. Clemens. We'll talk with him about this new, old history of Antietam, today on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. Success in Action is all about your success. Listen each week as co-hosts Lindy Burns and Bill Nelson direct and inspire you to craft your own success. Lindy serves as your guide, while Bill is the success architect, outlining the tips, strategies, ideas, and concepts based on over 30 years of sports coaching and corporate coaching. Lindy knows how to ask the right questions and move the program along. Bill will bring you the steps to take action today. Success in Action is broadcast live every Monday at 2 p.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you on a sunny June afternoon in 2010 from the third floor of the Brewster Building on campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina but as always not speaking for the university, which has plenty to say for itself, I'm sure, and nor will my guest speak for anyone but himself, as we always do. Well, it is a beautiful day. There's no one on campus on a Friday afternoon when everyone's gone off to the beach, and everyone else in the world, instead of listening to Civil War talk radio, is watching the 2010 World Cup, which began this morning. So to those two or three of you who are actually listening, welcome. I'm glad you're here with the show. I'm here with the show. Tomorrow I'll be engaging in the over-50 version of a local World Cup, playing soccer with my elderly friends in a tournament in Raleigh. But uh, it's enough to tell you about the U14s. You don't want to hear about the over-50s. But I will indulge in one personal moment to say that tomorrow morning I'll also be attending the high school graduation of my older daughter, Caroline, uh, who is the salutatorian number two in her class of 300, a whisker of a grade point behind number one, uh, a close friend of hers. The two of them competed for four years, and 
I'm extraordinarily proud that she is where she is and excited that she's off in the fall to Bowdoin College, where the spirit of Joshua Chamberlain still hovers over uh, the campus, uh, a figure familiar to everyone listening to this show, certainly. Uh, with summer upon us, this will also be the last live show of Civil War Talk Radio for this academic year. We'll be coming back live September 3rd with new shows. Uh, I'll be this week, uh, this coming week in Richmond on uh, the 17th, 18th, 19th at the Society of Civil War Historians uh, biannual meeting, or biennial meeting, I guess there's two every year. And if you happen to be in that area, and are, or if you're a member of that organization and can drop by, please say hello. I'll be there looking for people to invite to the fall season. We've already got some good, very interesting guests lined up. Uh, I appreciate the suggestions that came in last week and invite you again to send to my address at ecu.edu uh, any email ideas you might have for people to be on the show next year. Many of them will be at the uh, the meeting, and I'll be looking forward to inviting them. And also, uh, in addition to sending your suggestions, as always, donations to the show's book fund are welcome. You can send those by PayPal to civilwartr at aol.com. You don't need any special account. If you go to the PayPal website, they'll show you how to part with your money uh, quickly and easily and send it off to civilwartr at aol.com. Uh, before getting to our, our discussion this week of a really remarkable new book, uh, I'll say a word about uh, our, my friends at the Sons of Confederate Veterans chapter in Kinston, North Carolina. They were kind enough to invite me to speak last week, uh, which I did, choosing a topic I knew they would enjoy, Abraham Lincoln. And it was my first uh, experience talking to uh, Sons of Confederate Veterans chapter here in North Carolina. Uh, it's different, I will say, from the uh, Civil War roundtable groups that I've spoken to uh, in, in a few ways, one of which is that I don't know if they do this at every SCV meeting, uh, perhaps they do, but the call of the role uh, in which the members' names are called and they answer, not with their own names, but by giving the name of, uh, for example, Sergeant Jimmy Johnson, 44th North Carolina, uh, and perhaps uh, the, the soldier's fate, a uh, prisoner at Point Lookout or killed at Spotsylvania. Um, it, uh, it could verge into caricature of sort of Old South uh, you know, lost causeism. Uh, but done in a sort of restrained and matter-of-fact way, it was actually uh, uh, somewhat impressive. And the group itself uh, could not have been more cordial uh, or thoughtful with their questions about Abraham Lincoln. They were skeptical, I would say, uh, and, and questioning, but not hostile and, uh, and very well-informed. And we really had, uh, I thought, a very interesting discussion and exchange of views, and I enjoyed it thoroughly and look forward to going back and enjoying some barbecue at King's Restaurant in Kinston where they meet uh, sometime in the future. Well, we do not have any barbecue to share with our guests today because we're talking on the phone instead of in person, so that's just how it goes. But our guest is Dr. Thomas Clemens, who has annotated and edited the, the Carmen Manuscript, which we'll, we'll talk about today. Uh, Dr. Clemens, are you there? 
And again, our Dr. Clemens, are you there? Yes, I can hear you. Ah, wonderful. I can hear you now. You've got your, your now you're turned up. We're we're connected. Very good. Um, uh, let me say, although you and I have never met, I met your brother last month at the Chesapeake Civil War Roundtable, who was bragging on your recent accomplishment in in this publication. Uh, <laughs> so I feel like we know each other. Well, and I've seen your name around quite a bit as well, and I'm. Sorry, I won't be joining you at the Society of Civil War Historians Conference this year. I enjoyed last year in Philadelphia. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I haven't been to one in a number of years, and I'm, I'm very much uh, excited to uh, to get back and uh, connect up with people in the field. Is it all right if, if, if uh, we go by a first-name basis? Please call me Jerry. Uh, uh, oh, certainly, certainly. I, all right. Don't use the doctor hardly at all. So <laughs> uh, that uh, I only use it when I'm making restaurant reservations and, and uh, you know want to get some respect. They they think I'm like a real doctor. Uh, yeah. Otherwise, yeah, Jerry, it's fine. I live in well, terror. Somebody's going to have a heart attack on an airplane. And expect me to do something about it. <laughs> <laughs> that that would be a problem. Now, um, in uh, in your day job, then you uh, you teach history. Um, Tell, tell us a little bit about your background, uh, educationally or professionally. Well, I uh, received my bachelor's and master's degree at Salisbury, uh, well, it was Salisbury State College then. It's now Salisbury University on the eastern shore of Maryland. And uh, then came to western Maryland, where I've lived for the last 32 years almost, uh, and have been working at Hagerstown Community College, uh, all that time, and for the last 26 or more years, I've been full-time professor of history, teaching mostly the survey class, but uh, as I like to say, the carrot they dangle in front of my nose is that every uh, now and then I do get to teach a class in Civil War. Uh, I finished and... my doctoral degree at uh, George Mason University uh, in Fairfax with uh, Dr. Joe Harsh as my advisor. And, and I know our listeners will recognize that name. He's written about Lee's army, uh, uh, about the 1862 campaign, uh, certainly, and in, in, in very well known. So, so you've got a pedigree here to, to write about this. The dust jacket of the book says you're also involved with the uh, Save Historic Antietam Foundation. Yes, that's correct, and it's something I'm very excited about. Um, Save Historic Antietam Foundation, uh, SHAF, or SHAF, as we call it, uh, got started in 1985 uh, when we tried to prevent the local government authorities from rezoning the site where Abraham Lincoln visited uh, George McClellan and his staff uh, a few weeks after the Battle of Antietam. A uh, very famous photograph taken of McClellan and Lincoln standing in front of a tent with uh, various staff officers around was taken on that farm, and uh, it was in danger of becoming a shopping center. And so uh, several uh, historians, none of us really knew much about real estate or preservation, but uh, Reverend John Schilt, a name you probably recognize as an author of a number of books about Antietam, and uh, Dennis Fry, who is the uh, historian at the uh, Park Service in Harpers Ferry, and myself and a host of other folks got together and sort of formed an organization and decided that we were going to try to preserve the land outside the battlefield that the uh, national government was unable to do so. Now, how, how uh, and is that organization still active today? We are. Uh, we are 
still uh, carrying out that mission, and also we serve as a cooperative agency with the park. We've done a number of projects uh, helping them within the boundary as well. We've given them money, and we've engaged in scene restoration. We've also saved a number of important buildings around the uh, community. So if people want to help uh, that group, is there a, a website or an address or something they can uh, find out S- more or contribute? shaf.org, shaf.org. All right, that's pretty straightforward. So if you're interested, listeners, in finding out more about uh, keeping Antietam as uh, well-preserved as it is, uh, that's the place to go. Thank you. Well, Antietam really is one of the best-preserved battlefields, certainly, uh, I think it's probably the best-preserved battlefield on the East Coast and rivaled perhaps only by Shiloh in Tennessee as the best Civil War battlefield in terms of preservation. Now, that's obviously you know an opinion that a lot of people uh, certainly have their own thoughts on, but uh, it ranks among the best-preserved. There's no question about that. It, it does. I would put in a plug for Perryville in Kentucky, although that's not quite on the level and significance with with Antietam or Shiloh, but but all three of them are, are sort of off the beaten path and have been thus far fortunate to avoid right. uh, getting Walmarted. Well, Perryville's a fascinating place, and the parallels between the battle there, which of course turns back the Confederate invasion in the Western Theater in the fall of '62, much like Antietam did. Uh, it's it's uncanny, and uh, I agree. I've been there a number of times, and Perryville's a fascinating place. Uh, Technically, it's a state park, so mm-hmm. we can still call Antietam the best-preserved battlefield in the National Park Service, but uh, that's a minor point. There, Yeah, you're right. It's a fascinating field, too. Yeah, well, that, that is a good point, just not to diverge too much into Perryville, but a lot of it is also in private hands. It just hasn't been developed. And I, yes. I, uh, there was a recent appeal from the Civil War Preservation Trust uh, for Perryville, and it's one that I personally answered and, and sent off my check. If it, I, I would love to answer every appeal. We all would, but it's not always possible. But, but Perryville is both vulnerable and uh, uh, really beautiful. Uh, but Antietam is, 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 was the first Civil War battlefield I ever visited, and it's probably why I do what I do for a living. Uh, it is just such a, a evocative place uh, with well, it is, and I think you're right. I think that Antietam was fortunate that in a lot of ways it was, and to some extent still is, off the beaten path. Uh, you know, I, I compare it with Gettysburg, which was the county seat of Adams County and was going to grow even if a huge battle didn't happen there. Sharpsburg, on the other hand, was a small farming community and has remained a small rural community for, you know, 140-some years since the battle, and... Uh, we count that as a very fortunate thing in a lot of ways. The uh, the, the person we're going to talk about who, who wrote the manuscript uh, was also involved with the battlefield, so maybe we can approach his career backwards, starting at the end. Uh, yep. t- tell us about Ezra Carman. Ezra Carman is a fascinating man. He's from New Jersey and uh, actually received a military education in Kentucky, uh, at a military school called the Kentucky Military Institute in Frankfurt, but that school itself moved to uh, Tennessee and eventually wound up being the University of Tennessee, and Carmen taught math there for a while. He got into the war late. He was actually reluctant to join in the early days of the war because he was a family man, there was some illness, uh, there was a lot of family problems. 
yet he was present at the Battle of Bull Run as a civilian, and what he saw evidently made him very cognizant that his services were needed, and soon after that he accepted a commission. Uh, from there, he served throughout the war, including at the Battle of Antietam. He led one of those brand-new regiments, and as you probably know, Jerry, there were uh, quite a few Union soldiers at the Battle of Antietam who had been in the Army less than two months, some of them as little as three weeks. Uh, and Carmen, although a veteran himself, was the colonel of a brand-new regiment that... Uh, fought in the Battle of Antietam. He talked about uh, marching through the East Woods and seeing a rail fence, and using that rail fence as a straight line, he was instructing his regiment how to deploy skirmishers forward, uh, literally giving them drills there on the, in the midst of going into battle. That's on-the-job training, they, they, <laughs> their first experience there. In a very extreme sense. He served throughout the war as a colonel, um, as you know, of course, the 12th Corps and 11th Corps were combined into the 20th Corps and sent to Tennessee and ultimately took part in the uh, campaign against Atlanta and the march to the sea. Uh, Carmen commanded a brigade for much of that time, but never got his general star until the war was over when he was given the brevet rank. Uh, but he appeared to be a very competent and skillful brigade commander. After the war, he held a couple of minor government jobs, but August 30th of 1890, the United States government created the battlefield at Antietam, uh, and that first five uh, national battlefields that were set aside by the federal government. And within four years, Carmen was hired to be uh, part of the battlefield board, which was gathering information and laying out the field, creating maps, marking the field with plaques, and that's when he started writing his manuscript. So the plaques that are on the battlefield today, are those the original ones that the battlefield board put up there? Yes, they are, for the most part. The text is certainly the original. Some of them have, over the years, suffered mishaps and been replaced. Some of them are the original iron ones from the 1890s, and some of them are newer replacements, but nobody has changed the wording. And I find that incredible that Carmen was able to arrive at uh, the material that is on those plaques uh, with his compatriots on the board, and nobody has really raised much serious challenge to them since. So, so when you and I go to the battlefield and we're reading those plaques, we're reading Carmen's text. This is his, the, the results of his research. Absolutely. What I have found... Uh, the battlefield board, which initially was uh, Henry Heath, uh, who, as you know, commands a Confederate division at uh, Gettysburg, he wasn't at Antietam, but he winds up being on the battlefield board at Antietam. Heath and Carmen and everybody else who served on the board solicited letters from veterans, hundreds of letters, memoirs, and then they sort of sorted through them and kind of wrote back and questioned a few points, and then they would create, and I found these in Carmen's uh, battlefield board papers, there will be sort of a summary of all the material they've gotten from these various people, so-and-so says, so-and-so says, and then they'll come up with sort of a summary of what they believe is the most likely thing that happened in that particular brigade, and they write the text for the plaque. So they really are sorting through 
multiple sources, multiple primary sources. Absolutely, uh, yeah. It's for a man who had no formal training as a historian, uh, he's doing it right. Now, in addition to compiling these, uh, the, the, well, well, actually, let me work backwards in time. You say he started this uh, in the 1890s, but he actually began learning about the battle shortly after it happened. Oh, absolutely. His diary talks about wanting to do a map of Antietam in, in the few weeks after the battle when his regiment is in the area. He you know, is already questioning people, uh, talking about the battle. It's something that evidently never left him. Uh, when the National Cemetery at Antietam was created in 1867, he was on the uh, board of uh, supervisor for that cemetery off and on for years. So he was always strongly interested in Antietam. So, in, in many ways, like like John Batchelder with Gettysburg, he's he makes a career <laughs> very much, of... very much. Uh, it's because Gettysburg is so well known. When I try to explain this to people, uh, they'll say, "Oh, well, Carmen's sort of like the Batchelder of Gettysburg, or of, of Carmen is the Batchelder of Antietam." And one of the points I like to make is, yes, but Batchelder wasn't at the Battle of Gettysburg. Carmen was a participant in the Battle of Antietam. Uh, as I like to say, like the ancient Greek historian Thucydides, uh, Carmen became a chronicler of his own war. Which I, I guess can cut both ways. I mean, when you cite Thucydides, that sort of disarms the criticism because there's the, the you know, father of history uh, <laughs> doing, doing a good job. So it certainly doesn't necessarily mean you can't be objective. What we'll do now is take a short break. We'll come back in a minute, talk more today with Tom Clemens, the annotator and editor of the Carmen Manuscript, a fascinating history of the Antietam campaign. We'll talk more about it in a minute on Civil War Talk Radio. Talk Radio Variety Channel. The Carmen Manuscript is appearing in print after a hundred years. What new things will it tell us about the Antietam campaign? We'll talk about that with Tom Clemens when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Are you ready to go green? You've asked, and we've heard you. Introducing the Green Talk Network. Environmental topics are at the forefront of our society, and the Green Talk Network is here to keep you up to date on the latest trends and innovations for the eco-conscious lifestyle. We'll help promote a variety of ideas on the environment, from global warming issues to how you can become more eco-friendly in your daily activities. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. Visit thegreentalknetwork.com and tune in to help spread the green. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. 
I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Thomas G. Clemens. He's the editor and annotator of The Maryland Campaign of 1862, Volume 1, South Mountain. It's a manuscript originally written by Ezra Carman, Colonel of the 13th New Jersey, and just seeing print now for the first time. Uh, in our first segment, we talked a little bit about Carmen and his career, uh, both as a military man and then following up uh, with his interest, lifelong interest after that, in the Battle of Antietam and his role in uh, helping create the battlefield, uh, helping to manage the battlefield and uh, write the text for the plaques that you can still see on the Antietam battlefield today. Uh, Tom, in addition to well, you said uh, Carmen's initial interest right after the battle was to put together a map, and he started asking questions to get more information, and the project grew and grew. Um, at some point, we get to the the final product, this 1,800-page manuscript. Um, <laughs> fill us in, in, in between. How did we get from A to B? Well, one of Carmen's charges as the uh, historical expert, that was his title. He was hired to be historical expert. Uh, at the battlefield, and one of his charges was that he was to write a pamphlet explaining the major uh, actions, and this pamphlet sort of became the all-consuming task for him, uh, along with the maps of creating these accurate time sequence maps, 14 of them from daybreak until 5.30 in the afternoon, of all the troop movements and major actions, and then his manuscript more or less key to those maps is a narrative of what's happening. And uh, he labored on that from 1894. The last time that I can be certain that he made changes on it was somewhere around 1900 to 1901, but maybe even a little bit later than that. Uh, he wrote this out longhand, uh, which is, I think, an accomplishment for a fellow whose service record says that he claimed disability for wounds to his right arm. Mm. Uh, and... Uh, so transcribing it alone was quite a task, but uh, he used the veterans' accounts. Uh, they wrote to him. They came and visited the battlefield, and he interviewed them. Uh, he used the official records, of course. Uh, the few regimental histories that were starting to come out in the 1880s, 1890s, he you know, used them on occasion. Uh, he leaned heavily on the uh, Century Magazine's Battles and Leaders of the Civil War series. So he's pretty... Pretty, I think, broad in his uh, choice of sources, and yet he understood that the people who were there were probably the best source. Now, did he intend to publish this? Well, I think so. Uh, his papers are full of all sorts of half-started manuscripts on a lot of different campaigns, including a whole history of the Civil War. And as far as I can tell, none of them were ever published, but he did, I think, eventually intend to publish it, yes. And what was it just something where he just couldn't declare himself finished and, and get to it or didn't look for a publisher? Or, I, I think that's it, Jerry. I think he was constantly tweaking it. Um, I found an example, for instance, um, in the chapter dealing with Harper's Ferry. In the handwritten narrative, there's along the margin just a little scrawl that quotes Jackson uh, talking about when he had uh, completed the capture and the uh, Union soldiers that surrendered and the weapons, etc. And there's a scrawled note in the margin that says Jackson remarked to somebody that uh, he was sorry the cavalry had escaped. He would rather have had those 1,400 horses than anything else in the place. 
And I found the letter where the person who wrote to him told him that Jackson said that. And that letter's in, uh, oh, I think it's the early 1900s. So he was evidently still tweaking. And also, of course, in 1905, he's transferred to Chickamauga, where he becomes the chairman of the battlefield board in Chickamauga. And so he's away from Antietam after 1905 and uh, not able to work as directly. So did he write anything about Chickamauga? He evidently intended to, and there's a lot of gathering of information. There's a lot of uh, notes about things. Yeah, his his papers are full of notes of campaigns of all sorts of things. He's got a lot of letters and information about the early uh, campaigns in western Virginia, uh, Chickamauga, uh, the March to the Sea, all sorts of things. So he's got this big stack of paper in longhand that he's written out. He's got all these notes and things. Uh, he doesn't publish them, so so where do they go, and where are they now? Well, good question. Uh, they're scattered. Uh, the Antietam Battlefield uh, Board papers, a lot of them, what they call the Antietam Studies, are in the National Archives in Washington, D.C., but there are some additional letters, maps, and the manuscript itself in the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. Also, when Carmen died, his son gathered up all the papers, evidently, that were in Carmen's possession at that time and simply deposited them in the New York Public Library, where they still reside and there's his diary and other papers that are in the New Jersey Historical Society, which he helped found, and they're uh, in Newark. So it's been quite a bit of a process just simply getting together all of his papers that pertain to Antietam. So how did you first learn about this collection or this manuscript? From Joe Harsh. Uh, Joe pointed out, as you were saying in your introduction, and this is exactly right, Everybody who writes about Antietam simply cites the Carmen manuscript and says, you know, these stories, these anecdotes, these narratives are in Carmen, and so people just cite it. But what Joe challenged me was, how does Carmen know this stuff? Uh, he had, Joe Harsh had intended to work on it himself, but he found himself so overwhelmed with getting his trilogy out that uh, he asked me if I would be willing to take on annotating Carmen's manuscript as a, as a dissertation, which uh, he oversaw. and uh, I began it and uh, completed the degree, but uh, just kept working. Uh, there's maybe an occupational hazard with this. They, they, but unlike Carmen, uh, in, instead of working and never publishing, we actually now have this, uh, at least volume one of, of this manuscript in print. Um, so when you your challenge was to do something that I, I thought was very interesting uh, as I'm reading this, and just to clue the listeners in a bit, uh, what I'm looking at here is, is a book called The Maryland Campaign of September 1862, Volume 1, South Mountain. That implies there's going to be a Volume 2. Uh, yes, it does. And uh, I have the leg shackle on my desk right here the, attached to my ankle that I'm supposed to stay here and keep hammering away until Volume 2 is done. Well, don't let anything distract you. Don't watch the World Cup. Don't, uh, don't do other things. What uh, uh, is it? Two volumes or three? Uh, well, I'm thinking two right now. Uh, the publisher, uh, Savas Beatty, and myself have kind of spun the idea of maybe a volume three. 
simply because, in some ways, Carmen, as I like to say, he is a government employee who's writing a government report. And so he wants the facts. He's really most interested in what happened on the battlefield at Antietam and the events leading up to it. What I found, however, is when you read through these hundreds and hundreds of letters, some of these veterans are telling him some really interesting and sometimes poignant stories, which Carmen, of course, ignores because that's not his job. His job is to create a pamphlet explaining the battle. And I'd love for some of those letters to see the light of day. So you could have a, a third volume culling the, the, the unpublished Carmen, the hidden Carmen. Yeah, again, to borrow uh, your earlier example, much like the Batchelder papers of Gettysburg. We know what Batchelder's maps look like, and then they published the papers of who wrote to him. I think it'd be fun to do something like that with these letters from Antietam. And otherwise, if anyone wants to use them, they have to go, as you say, to the Library of Congress or perhaps to the New York Public Library or... Yes. New Jersey Historical Society, or many different places to find these all. Well, exactly. And and one of the things that excited me uh, tremendously, uh, and as a historian you probably can sympathize, there were several stories in Carmen's manuscript that had no other confirming source. And, and this is why historians, McPherson and uh, Sears and Harsh even, uh, would simply cite the Carmen manuscript and say, Carmen says this happened, and so there you have it. And in the New York Public Library uh, collection, I found some letters that, in fact, gave a source for some of these stories that nobody else had been able to find up to this point. And, and that really is, is what is, to me, unique about this volume, is you, you basically reverse-engineered Carmen, the, the way... Uh, Exactly. A computer person can take a, a finished piece of software and, and work backwards through it to figure out what the program was. Uh, you've in, instead of a, a normal histor historical project, you you go to the letters, the journals, the diaries, the sor sources of all kinds, and then come up with conclusions. You've started with what Carmen's manuscript, and you're going back and putting the footnotes in that he never did. Right. We we call that deconstructing, if you yes. will. Uh, and that was literally Dr. Harsh's challenge to me, was he said, how does Carmen know what he's talking about? And I said, well, oh. <laughs> gee, he talked to all these veterans. Well, gee, are the veterans ever wrong about remembering something? Sure, sometimes. So that was sort of the challenge, is find out how Carmen knows what we think he knows. And... Uh, as I say, sometimes it's fairly easy. Uh, sometimes he's borrowing right out of the official records or battles and leaders. Sometimes it's obscure and it's a letter, and you've got to do a lot of digging to find which letter and uh, that sort of thing. So the the book that results uh, has on each page the text uh, from from Carmen and Carmen's own text describing in narrative form the. Uh, the campaign of 1862, the Maryland campaign of 1862. And then the footnotes at the bottom are the ones that you've written, which then tell us where on that page Carmen found what he found, whether it's taken, as you say, from battles and leaders or from the official records or sometimes from from individual letters uh, that no one else knows about that are, are in the Carmen papers. So, so exactly. they're not common knowledge. And And sometimes I think some analysis is necessary, too. For example, uh, Carmen takes 
at face value the account of uh, General John G. Walker, the Ten Battles and Leaders. And uh, Walker is the source for this story about while their Confederate army is in Frederick, uh, Walker goes into Lee's tent at night and has this long interview with Lee where Lee explains the whole campaign and all the things that are happening and going to happen. And he talks about Lee unrolling a map and tracing with his finger and saying that the bridges across the Susquehanna River at Harrisburg are the object of his campaign. And Carmen puts that in the manuscript. But uh, Joe Harsh, again, to give credit where it should go, was the first person to say, you know, Walker's the only person that says that. Nobody else says that at all. And how would Lee unburden all this information to Walker, whom he barely knows, and not tell Jackson or Longstreet or any of his other senior commanders? Um, What we find, and this is why I wanted to qualify the footnote, yes, that information comes from Walker and Battles and Leaders, but when you look at everything that Walker wrote, not only that account, but his after-action report, somehow in 1862, Walker doesn't know a whole lot about what's going on. But in 1880s, when he's writing his Battles and Leaders article, he knows all sorts of things that are going on. And so I think what Walker's doing is he's trying to make himself a whole lot more important in a campaign than he was and saying after the fact that he knew everything that was going on when I don't believe he really did. So in other words, I think Walker's Battles and Leaders account is highly embellished. Uh, if nothing else, as you probably recall, Jerry, through the entire Maryland campaign, Robert E. Lee's arms are in slings. His hands are damaged. He's got broken bones. And so he's got splints and bandages on his hands. He can't dress himself. He can't feed himself. And all of a sudden, Walker has him in a tent, unrolling maps, tracing things with a finger. I don't think it happened. And and it would not be the first time that an officer's memoirs magnified his own role in a, a Civil War campaign. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. I think so, Longstreet's memoirs are another example of sometimes he sort of knows things much later in life than he did at the time. So you point that out in, in a number of the footnotes here. You, you show where Carmen found things and where things uh, Carmen is quoting might be less than fully accurate. But what really is striking, and, and you alluded to this when we talked about the, the plaque, uh, the text on the plaques on the battlefield, uh, what is striking is how much of Carmen's manuscript holds up so well. Uh, after you know, over 100 years of additional scholarship, Uh, most of what he says seems quite accurate. It really does hold up well. You're exactly right. And in fact, uh, you know, we live very near the battlefield, and I count among my uh, most valuable friends a lot of the interpreters and historians over there at the battlefield. And to this day, when they're planning a special walk or a special program or a special segment about the battlefield, the place that they start is Garmin. Uh, it is still the basis of the interpretation of the battle today. And uh, anybody who has written about the battle will tell you that they have had to resort to Carmen sometimes because there just isn't anything else. Now, when somebody wanted to do that, was there any printed version of this of, of Carmen's text up to now? Or... Not really. Uh, Carmen's text was in the Library of Congress. People knew about it, but nobody had transcribed it until the 1990s when Joe Harsh transcribed most of the battle chapters. Uh, 
uh, well, he transcribed a lot of the whole thing, uh, and then I completed his transcription. He used it in writing his trilogy, and then he sold that transcription, the battle chapters, to uh, somebody who was turning out a computer game about Antietam, and mm-hmm. used then the narrative accompanied the computer game. Then, uh, oh, three, four years or so ago, a fellow from Virginia named uh, Piero uh, did a edited version of Carmen's manuscript, which he himself acknowledged was sort of a very quick and dirty, very basic thing, not to the depth that I'm taking this. Uh, and in fact, he and I have communicated since he didn't know I was working on it. Mm. Uh, and uh, was quite apologetic when he found out that I was and has sort of uh, very gracefully, you know, stepped out of the limelight and, uh, you know, but uh, there is another printed version out there. Uh, but it's, uh, I, I dare say, not quite in the depth that this is. Mm-hmm. Well, that's one of the occupational hazards of the historian. One reason why we go to meetings and, and try <laughs> to talk among ourselves is find out who's doing what, because there's nothing exactly. uh, more more uh, frightening than the thought of spending years on a particular project and then have somebody else publish on the same topic well, before you do. Exactly right, and that's part of the reason why I'm very grateful to uh, Ted Savas and Savas Beatty is that... Uh, you know, I didn't think anybody would touch this after that came out, and Ted said, no, I think we can make this work, and, and bless him, uh, it has. Well, I think the, the, the apparatus, the footnotes, uh, the explanation certainly make it worthwhile. Um, we're going to take another short break. We'll come back and talk some more. Sure. Our guest today is Thomas Clemens, the editor and annotator of the Carmen Manuscript on the Antietam Campaign. We'll return in just a few moments on Civil War Talk Radio. Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Ezra Carman wrote a remarkably accurate manuscript about the Antietam campaign, but he was human and he had his biases and prejudices as well. We'll find out about some of these when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. Ready to revolutionize your thinking? It's time to learn about the clarity, simplicity, and speed of systems thinking and how it can be applied to every aspect of your daily life. Each week, tune in to Steve Haynes Live and learn one systems thinking concept. You'll also learn three simple, clear, and integrated applications that you can use instantly. You can apply them to your life, job, family, organization, government, and or society. Steve Haynes Live broadcasts every Tuesday afternoon at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Join Steve, and together we will make a global difference. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. 
Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Thomas G. Clemens, the editor of a new volume called The Maryland Campaign of September 1862, Volume 1, South Mountain. The original manuscript is by Ezra Carman, Colonel of the 13th New Jersey. It has been consulted many times over the years by scholars sitting in its place in the Library of Congress, but now for the first time we have a fully annotated and edited and analyzed version of this uh, detailed and very uh, well-written and interesting history of the Antietam campaign. Uh, Tom, the, we were talking about how well this holds up as history, uh, the, the, the level of primary source research that, that Carmen engaged in uh, really is remarkable. But there are times uh, that you point out in your footnotes where, where Carmen let his, his biases show through. There were people he did or didn't like. Uh, can you Absolutely. comment on some of those? What, what's interesting to me is it's in many ways not what you'd think. Uh, that, in fact, you know, for a Union veteran, a man who had spent uh, almost four years getting shot at by the Confederates, he speaks very admiringly of Lee and Jackson and some of the other Confederate leaders. And if there is a villain in this whole thing, it is actually the Union uh, General-in-Chief of Armies in the Field, Henry W. Halleck, who... I think it's fair to say Carmen just practically loathes. Well, now, writing as he does in the early 20th century, the end of the 19th century, that was, uh, as David Blight and others have, have been recently arguing, is, is the age of reconciliation when uh, yes. it's maybe not so surprising that Union veterans would speak highly of, of their former foes and vice versa. But it is interesting that, that McClellan is not the villain, uh, as he is in many Antietam stories, or at least the scapegoat may be a better word. Uh, uh, Halleck is here. Yeah. Uh, Carmen is sort of interesting because he goes back and forth on McClellan sometimes. Sometimes he's very critical, and as you probably know from reading it, I've pointed out in the footnotes, sometimes that's justifiable and sometimes it's perhaps unfair. Uh but he is, I think, on, on overall balance, more favorable to McClellan than most of the books written since the war, uh, which I think is a very interesting uh, point of view and, and one that I, I have to confess uh, I've been pretty much convinced uh, that Carmen is right. Uh, part of the problem for George McClellan and the Battle of Antietam is that for the average American who doesn't deal in subtleties and uh, shades of, of gray, but wants things black and white, uh, there has to be a villain, there has to be a hero. Well, here at Antietam, you have Abraham Lincoln, perhaps the most revered president in American history, and Robert E. Lee, one of the most admired soldiers. And so anybody else is going to get shorter shrift simply because those two are soaking up all the oxygen in the room, uh, if you will. And when McClellan criticizes Lincoln, then this, I think, magnifies even more Lincoln's greatness, and McClellan becomes more the villain, because after all, as I like to point out, one of those two people has their face on Mount Rushmore. Uh, and so once you're enshrined there, then 
you can't ever ever have done anything wrong or said anything untrue or what have you, right? So well, it's sort of the simple uh, version of what happens in this very complex and very fascinating campaign is that people say, well, McClellan had far more men than Lee. McClellan didn't destroy Lee's army. Therefore, McClellan is an idiot. And it's a much more complicated story than that. Well, now, in this volume, which which goes up through the Lee's invasion of Maryland, the Union response, uh, the fighting at South Mountain on September 14, when the, the Union forces drive the Confederates back and Lee decides to end the invasion and rally the army at Sharpsburg, uh, it, it gets us right up to the eve of the battle. Um, but during that time, the, the usual charge against McClellan is that he found Special Order 191. He, he had Lee's entire campaign plan in his hand by a quirk of fate, and yet he failed to act decisively to defeat Lee's army while it was spread out all over western Maryland and northern Virginia and, and everywhere else. Uh, well, that's, that, that's the charge. Interpretation, yeah. Uh, couple of problems with that. Uh, first of all, orders have been being captured back and forth all summer long. You may recall that uh, Jeb Stewart's dispatch case was left behind at Verdeersville in August of 62, and uh, that allowed Pope to get all of Lee's orders about what he wanted Stewart to do and what he planned to do to Pope, and that's why Pope falls back. Then Stewart raids in Pope's rear, captures his headquarters, captures even more. So this has been going on. And I think if there's criticism of who does and who doesn't take advantage of this, it can be pretty liberally uh, distributed. But more specifically, what Lee essentially left behind was the marching orders of his army, but it did not really tell McClellan anything about the size of Lee's army. In fact, if there's anything to be inferred from 191, which is all McClellan can do, uh, the inference is that Lee has a big army, because the way that this dispatch is worded, it's saying Jackson and his command are going to march back into Virginia uh, and come up on the west of Harper's Ferry, uh, while Longstreet uh, and his command are going to go to Boonesboro or perhaps up to Hagerstown. It's all these commands. Well, without any idea of the organization and structure of Lee's army, the, that doesn't tell you an awful lot. But twice in that special order that was found, there's reference to the main body of the army, saying that the main body is going here or the main body this and that. In other words, the inference to be drawn is that there are a lot of detachments being made from an army, but there is still a main body. Now, 148 years later, you and I and everybody else knows that main body was no more than perhaps 18,000 men. But George McClellan doesn't know that. And in fact, all of his intelligence reports are telling him that Lee has a very large army. And this order reinforces that idea by saying, look at the detachments he's making from this army traveling in hostile territory. He obviously doesn't seem to be afraid of much. Well, then this is the other standard criticism of McClellan, which is he always thinks Lee has a much bigger army. Is that valid? Well, if you criticize somebody for believing the intelligence you pay somebody to give you, uh, it's not like there's anybody there saying, oh, no, no, the Army is much smaller, and McClellan doesn't believe them. In fact, and I, and I looked into this extensively, the lowest estimate that anybody provides McClellan of the size of Lee's Army 
is 75,000 men. That's the lowest estimate that anybody gave him. Again, we can play this, look at what I know 140 years later, but that's not really valid when you're criticizing somebody for a decision they made then. And, and how big is McClellan's army at that point? McClellan's army, when he left Washington, D.C., was almost exactly the size of Lee's army when he, before he crossed the Potomac River. Lee's tri-monthly return for the Army of Northern Virginia on September 1st was between 70 and 75,000 men. McClellan, when he marched out of Washington on the uh, 7th of September, left with about 70 to 75,000 men. Now, through the campaign, McClellan will get a few more men. Lee constantly loses men through the campaign, but interestingly enough, they start out almost exactly equal. And, of course, the straggling in both armies is going to reduce the numbers. Uh, McClellan will get more troops released to him. But even on the day of the battle, people look at the present for duty figure uh, of 87,000-some hundred men in McClellan's army and look at the effectives of the Army in Northern Virginia, which is a little less than 40,000. But that's like comparing apples and oranges because present for duty is not measuring who you can put into the ranks with muskets in their hands, it's everybody. It's the Teamsters, it's the uh, orderlies, it's the hospital clerks, it's the uh, commissary people. In other words, with an army of 87,000, his effectives are about 65,000. So it's really not this two-to-one advantage that uh, gets so commonly trumpeted. So... After McClellan finds the the lost order of Lee's army, uh, he does move faster in in pursuing Lee now that he knows this. But uh, Carmen seems to say not that much faster. Carmen is critical of, of McClellan, and this is where I think, again, Carmen sometimes misses a few points. Number one, this is intercepted intelligence, and so standard practice in the military then and now is to confirm it before you act on it. And so when McClellan gives a copy of 191 to his cavalry chief, Pleasanton, and says, essentially, go see if this is accurate, Pleasanton doesn't come back until 6.30 that night and say, as far as I know, it is. And it's not like the Army of the Potomac is sitting still doing nothing on the 13th while this is happening. There are troops moving, and in fact, troops move into uh Middletown Valley just you know a few miles away from South Mountain on the night of the 13th there are literally troops marching that night so uh i think perhaps carmen's criticism is a bit unfair uh carmen work says that uh, mcclellan should have night marched to be right at the foot of south mountain by daylight uh and that's again a criticism that possibly is accurate. On the other hand, as you know, uh, night marching was not very common in Civil War and generally not very effective. They tended to get lost a lot, and uh, stopping and starting, they wound up you know, being fatigued by daybreak. The, uh, so there are criticisms of, of McClellan and Carmen, but uh, as you said earlier, it's really Halleck that comes in for it. There was one quote I will share with the listeners on uh, page 276. Carmen writes uh, <laughs> about uh, about Halleck's orders to the garrison at Harper's Ferry that, of course, gets gobbled up by Stonewall Jackson. Uh, Halleck could not have been of more service to the Confederates had he been Lee's chief of staff. 
Um, <laughs> why did he hate Halleck so much? Not that Halleck did a great job, but... Uh... Yeah, that's a good question. I had just opened the book to that quote because I was going to give it if you hadn't, so thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it stands out. Because it, 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 Carmen does play his cards pretty close to his vest, but... Normally he does, but in that case, I think he just uh, let it go. Um, I think a lot of the generals didn't like Halleck. Carmen seems to bash Halleck because he's saying, look, Halleck is the commander-in-chief of all the Union armies. From the second Manassas campaign to Antietam, you've got two Union armies right there in front of Washington. And what Carmen essentially is saying is, why doesn't Halleck come out, place himself at the head of both armies, end the bickering about the two subordinates and say, I'm in charge, and lead the advance. And Halleck just isn't that kind of general and isn't going to do it. Uh, and so Carmen seems to lay a lot of fault at Halleck's door for the uh, jealousies and the uh, competition and the intrigues that are going on in the high command and the Union Army. And, and that's, he's not alone in that, certainly. That uh... No, no. Even uh, Stephen Ambrose's... Uh, biography of Halleck is, is somewhat critical of Halleck as sort of somebody who is afraid to really stick out their neck on much of anything. Now, and Lincoln himself said uh, he, he was no better no better than a, than a first-rate clerk after that. Uh, right. After he brought him to Washington and discovered Halleck could not make any decisions. No, he's always very, you know, equivocable, says, you know, here's what I think, but you're there, you're in charge, you make the decision, and then if things don't go well, he can say, well, I didn't tell him to do that. <laughs> uh, a model for modern management, perhaps. Uh, <laughs> well, Tom, unfortunately, we are out of time, but I want to thank you very much for being on the show today. Well, Jerry, I enjoyed it very much, and I hope your listeners did as well, and, and thank you for having me. And listeners, you will absolutely want to get a copy of the Maryland Campaign of 1862. Volume 1 is out now. Uh, Tom will do nothing else until he produces Volume 2, uh, we hope. Uh, the author is Ezra Carman. The editor is Thomas G. Clemens. It is, and I don't use the word lightly, it is the indispensable book on Antietam campaign. Uh, you'll want to get hold of it. So listeners, please do that. Please have a good summer. We'll be back in the fall with new shows of Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you all for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network.